church in my office, a couple of buildings over, right on the wall, right by my desk, I've got an Ansel Adams photograph of Half Dome. It's a beautiful scene. The, the moon is just hanging in the air behind it. And uh, Yosemite, if you've ever been there or seen the photographs, it's just off the charts. It's just spectacular, the vistas uh, in God's creation, in God's world. And I have uh, so enjoyed seeing those scenes over the years, and not just Half Dome, but El Capitan, you can see there, Yosemite Falls, redwood trees, giant sequoias. It's just amazing. And that just reflects the glory of God in creation. In fact, Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands, His handiwork. And so, in all of creation, we see God's glory because He made it, He created it. In the mornings, like this morning, I, I get in real early and I pray in, in the classroom, uh, well, I, in the hallways of our office building. I walk around and, and I see these offices, and it's, everything's dark at the time I leave the lights down. And all I see are the bright lights of the computer desktops, and just about all the staff have these beautiful scenes from, from nature and from creation on them. And so it's just, you know, you see the glory of God continually. One poet has a line that I particularly like. He wrote this. He says, the earth is charged with the grandeur of God. It's charged with God's grandeur, and you see His beauty in creation. This morning, we begin a series on Genesis 1 through 3. This is the foundational passage in all of Scripture, all of the major themes of the Bible are found in Genesis 1 through 3, at least in seed form. They're elaborated, but there are no fundamentally new teachings introduced after Genesis 1 through 3. There is such beauty and tragedy. There is such pathos and drama in this passage. These first three chapters are a theological goldmine, and they are a literary masterpiece. Key questions of life are answered here. Who is God? Who are, who are we as humans? What's marriage all about? What's the essence of work? Uh, sin, Satan, guilt, uh, grace, life, forgiveness, all of those things are introduced in Genesis 1 through 3. This introduces us to the fundamental foundational questions of life. It is so foundational. I'm going to begin this morning with reading the first five verses of Genesis 1, if you'd stand with me in honor of God's Word, I'm going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. So our Bible begins. First sentence. Simple, sublime statement. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's fitting that the Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, God. At the beginning of time, in the beginning, God exists. God 
is here. God is before anything else. He is above everything else. He is behind everything else in the beginning. God, the uncreated creator of all creation. Now, it's significant that the subject of the very first sentence is the word God. And this word God dominates the chapter. If you kind of got a Bible in front of you and you kind of look over at God's at every point, 35 times in the first 35 verses, because the Bible is all about God. The Bible is, uh, uh, Genesis 1 is about God. The book of Genesis is about God. The whole Bible is about God. This is a book about God, who he is, and what he's done in his creation. Note that the Bible does not begin by arguing for God's existence. It begins by assuming God's existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible never argues for God's existence because the, the Bible knows, as we are taught in Romans 1, that all of us know that there's a God in heaven, whether or not we try to deny it to ourselves and try to convince ourselves of atheism or agnosticism. We all know Largely through creation, but not completely through creation. We all know that there's a God in heaven. The Bible assumes the existence of God. Creation around us, we see God's hand. Uh, creation has been called God's greatest evangelist. You walk out a place like Yosemite, you see those computer desktops. You see in the human ear and the human eye, God's handiwork pointing to a creator God. Notice that the Bible does not start with something like, in the beginning, God sat in all of his majesty. Or it doesn't begin, you know, in the beginning, God was, was robed with, with glory and grandeur. It begins with God active, God at work in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Last week, I mentioned that Gail and I were, and our kids were in London for a few days, and we, we fortunately stayed about a mile from Hyde Park which is a, pl a huge park in the middle of London if you've been there. And, and uh, I love running in Hyde Park. And, and, and the direction I was coming from, from the northeast, I would, I would enter the park at a place that uh, is called a speaker's corner. And for decades and decades in England, speakers would stand at that corner and begin speaking about various things, and often a crowd would gather. One person tells a story about a Catholic writer and publisher by the name of Frank Sheed and said, you know, he was pretty gifted with his tongue, and one day he was out there talking about the creation and the extraordinary design and order and beauty and symmetry. And there was a heckler there, as there often was, and this heckler that day was, was uh, interrupting, and he, he talked about all the ills of the creation of the universe, and he closed his long-winded speech by saying, and I can make a better universe than your God. She looked at him and said, I won't ask you to make a universe, but would you just make a rabbit just to establish confidence? <laughs> and the absurdity of a human being creating anything. <laughs> but God, uncreated creator, creates the universe with his mere breath. Now when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it means in the beginning God created the universe. He created everything. The earth, it goes on to say in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is our first uh, 
interpretive question about how, how to figure out what's going on. Okay, verse 1 announces God created it all. It's the summary sentence of the rest of the chapter. But then in verse 2, is that the first step of creation? Does God create a, a watery, farmless, dark uh, planet? Is that the first step of creation? Or has there been a prior creation sometime before Genesis 1? And, and this is the state of things now. And in verse 3 he begins, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, either way works. Either one would fit with Genesis 1. Either after verse 1, he creates this dark, watery, formless, chaotic universe as the first step. But I believe, much more likely, this is what's going on. Genesis 1 gives us the creation as we know it, creation of the world as we know it, as we see it today. But sometime before that, there was the absolute creation by God, God created the universe. He created the angels. That explains the presence of Satan already on the scene in Genesis 3. Other passages in the Bible allude to this prior creation. So God created it, included the angels. One of the angels, Lucifer, led a rebellion. There was judgment, and probably the result was the chaotic, watery, formless earth planet that we've got here. Now, if so, if that's what's going on, then this is like Act 2 in the great drama. We don't have much about Act 1, but this is Act 2. The creation of the world as God made it, as we know it today. Now, either one works, I lean to the second one. All righty. Imagine this scene. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, that's kind of an ominous, intimidating, foreboding thing to imagine if you were there. You know, there's darkness over the deep, and, and you know, there's formless and void matter. But yet, the next line reassures us that God is in control, because then we read, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It may be dark and formless and chaotic, but the Spirit of God was right there, hovering like a mother bird hovering over its young, saying to us, God is in control. God is in charge. God reigns. Now, isn't it interesting that the plurality in the Godhead is hinted at already by the second verse of the Bible? Now, later in Genesis 1, we're going to see some plural pronouns that hint at it further. The rest of the Old Testament is certainly going to have many other hints about plurality. And then the New Testament, it will become clear that, yes, we've got one God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But in verse 2 already, that's sort of hinted at. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, there's a phrase in verse 2 that I wanted to point out before we move on. When it says, um, and the earth was without form and void, or often translated as without form and empty. And the Hebrew reader reading this would, would read a phrase, tohu wabohu. And tohu means uh, without form, and bohu means empty or void. And it became sort of a famous Hebrew phrase uh, depicting the earth, the creation, at the outset. It was tohu wabohu. It was without form and void. And actually, that phrase sets a literary uh, pattern for the rest of Genesis 1. The first three days of creation, 
show us that, that, that God fills the without form with form. And then the next three days shows that we fill, fill those three days with fullness. And so day one goes with day four, day two goes with day five, goes, three goes with day six. So day one, there's the light and darkness, and in verse four, I mean in the day four, there's the light of the day and the night. Look at verse two, sea and sky, and then in verse five, the creatures of the sea and sky. Look at verse three, the fertile earth, and then in verse six, the creatures of the fertile earth. And this symmetry just reflects the beautiful literary symmetry and beauty of Genesis 1. This is a literary masterpiece. Recently, I've been in Genesis 1 in my time with the Lord, not because I'm preaching it, just because I've finished the Bible and starting over again. And, and I've just been amazed at the profoundness, the treasure that this is. Okay, verse 3, I believe we're beginning the creation itself. Where we read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God creates by his mere word. He speaks the universe into existence without any effort whatsoever. The universe, such is the greatness of God. Now, to try to uh, comprehend uh, you know, what this means, that God would create the universe with his mere word and mere breath, uh, think about this. One of the great artworks in history is the Sistine Chapel. Some of you have been there. All of us have seen pictures. But the Sistine Chapel, uh, painted by Michelangelo, considered one of the greatest artists in history, retells Genesis 1. The ceiling does. The ceiling retells the story of creation in Genesis 1. Now, that was a whole lot of work from Michelangelo. It was a 6,000-foot ceiling that he had to cover with paint the size of four houses, Anyone who has painted a ceiling with a paint roller has caught a hint of the physical difficulty of such a task. But Michelangelo's plan called for 300 separate detailed portraits of men and women. So for more than three years, the five-foot-four-inch artist devoted all of his labors to the exhausting strain of painting this vast overhead space with his tiny paintbrushes. And that's besides all the walls and the backdrop. That took years more. Just the ceiling. And by the way, the Pope ordered him to do it. He preferred sculpting. He didn't like this task. But it was spectacular. For more than three years, he would do this. Sometimes he would paint standing on the scaffold, reaching high above to paint these paintings. Sometimes he would sit on a stool, and he would have back and just write a few inches before his eyes he'd be painting. Sometimes he'd be lying on his back, stretched out, you know, all day painting. And, you know, his, you imagine the shoulders, the back, the arms, the hands. All the cramping, the painful cramping. In the long days of summer, Michelangelo would have the light to paint for 17 hours straight. This is what he did. He, he painted on a 60-foot scaffold mostly, and he would go up in the morning with food and a chamber pot and stay up there all day painting. He would freeze in the winter. He would sweat in the summer. He painted until the ceiling looked like a ceiling no more, like those creatures seemed to breathe. Paint would dribble down into his eyes as he was working. And in that, in that vast painting, he retells the story of Genesis 1. Now contrast the incredibly difficult and arduous task of painting the Sistine Chapel about Genesis 1. Contrast that with how God creates the actual universe just with his mere breath just with his mere word. Let there be 
light and it springs into existence. And we are reminded of the greatness and the vastness and the grandeur of the God of the Bible and the God with which we have to do. He is so big. Now, isn't it interesting that the very first act of creation is light? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. How fitting it's light, because light is the main symbol of all truth, goodness, beauty, and love in the universe. And God starts there. Let there be light. It was just darkness before that. God creates light. The New Testament picks up on this. And the New Testament picks up on that this is not only the physical creation of light in the universe, but it is a metaphor of what God does in our hearts through Jesus. He creates light in my darkness. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul refers back to Genesis 1 through 3. He paraphrases it. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this great Sovereign, almighty God who created the galaxies by his mere breath. That's a God who cares about you and me so that one day, through the death of his own son, he would bring light out of our darkness in our hearts and save us by his grace. It's just it's an amazing thing that the great God is so good. He is great and he is good. Interesting, too, when God inspires the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, that he specifically echoes the first verses of the Bible in Genesis 1 and John 1. There we, there we read, in the beginning. Okay, that's echo in Genesis 1. He's, he's having all the readers think of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, back in Genesis 1, God begins by creating, now in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses down, he's going to make it clear, that's Jesus Christ. So this man, this human who walked around the earth, he is none other than the God of Genesis 1. And not only is God the Father the Creator, but also God the Son, both involved in the work of creation, as was God the Spirit. So, he goes on, verse 2. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, again, the work of creation is done not only by God the Father, God the Creator in Genesis 1, but God the Son, who came in flesh to us. He made it all. He's the Creator. And, and again, this mystery of the unity of Godhead, and yet the plurality of Godhead, putting it together. But, but this is specifically referring back to Genesis 1. Verse 4, next week we're going to see the creation of life. Plant life, animal life, human life. Notice what verse 4 says. In him was life. And that life was the light of men, referring to Genesis 1-3. And it goes more. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1-3. Out of the darkness, God creates light. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that ultimately. The light of the world comes to our planet 
to open our eyes, our blind eyes. He shines in the darkness of our hearts, and that darkness, sinful though it may be, does not quench out the light. One day he will come again in all glory, and there'll be no doubt who he is. Just a taste to start. And I, I couldn't keep going explaining the verses because we've got to pause here and look at some of the enormous implications of Genesis 1 because it affects everyday life much more than we realize. In fact, uh, this week as I was uh, working on the message, I, I thought, well, you know, which of the implications should I talk about? I, I, I considered at least seven of them. But, but I thought that's too many. And I had a good friend that said, that's too many. So we're going to do three. Three of the biggest implications of Genesis 1. Think about it with me. The first implication of Genesis 1 is that we live in a world where there is a creator. Now, if we did not have a creator, that means that we are here by chance. If we did not have a creator, we're just a bunch of random atoms. And over billions and billions of years, you know, all those atoms kind of, you know, hit together and came out with something like this. And, um, and we're just the product of time plus chance if there's no personal God, no personal creator. And that means that if there is no personal creator and we're the product of time plus chance, there is no real purpose or meaning or significance in the universe. You and I are a collection of atoms and we're in a vast, cold, empty universe and there's no meaning at all. That is the alternative to the creator God. That we live in a world where there is a creator, that affects everything, changes everything. And all of that life significance purpose is found in our God. Now, the second implication is similar, but it, but it goes further. The second implication is this. We are accountable to our creator. If, if we're not the products of chance, but if God in heaven created us, he owns us. We belong to him. He made us. He owns us. We belong to him. He's the potter. I'm the clay. I'm accountable to him. And we know this in our hearts. We know it. And uh, that means I'm accountable to obey him, to bow my knee to him, to worship him. I'm accountable to live my life in a God-centered way rather than a man-centered way, a self-centered way, or another person way, or in a stuff-things way, but I'm called to live in a God-centered universe, accountable to my creator. Now, here's the rub when it comes to atheism and agnosticism. This is why there are a lot of folks who reject God. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is moral. The problem is the will. The problem is it is a lot more comfortable for me not to have to be accountable to the creator and do what he says. Man, if there's no God... You know, yippee, I just do my, go and do my own stuff, do whatever I want. I don't have to bow the knee to anybody. And there are a lot of folks who, who pursue that, get, uh, I think, an intellectual smokescreen and choose the way of agnosticism or atheism. But for the honest observer, the Bible says, if you really want to know about God, you'll find him. He will, he will meet you. He will, he will come to you. The fact that the Genesis 1 talks about a creator God means you're accountable to that creator. He's the Lord. He's God, and you're not. He's God. No surprise that the truth of God as creator is under such attack by Satan because the implications are so enormous. 
including our accountability to obey Him and worship Him. All right, one more implication, and that is this, simply, that the Creator is so big and His Word so powerful. And that's one of the major takeaways of Genesis 1, the effortless way that God creates the vast galaxies. Oh, He is not a small God. He's not a tame God. He is the Almighty. He is incomparably great. That is, you cannot compare Him with anything else. He's incomparable. He is incomprehensibly great. That is, ultimately, He's incomprehensible because He is God, uncreated, and we are not. He is the infinite, uncreated Creator. Now, Philip Yancey once gave us this analogy. He's a writer. He said, from our hemisphere, there's only one other galaxy that is visible to the naked eye, and that galaxy is Andromeda. Uh, you scientists would, you know, know this stuff better than I do, but Andromeda is two million light years away. It's our nearest neighbor. Two million light years, okay, light, 186,000 miles a second for a year, it's two million light years away, that's our near neighbor. And Andromeda showed up on star charts long before telescopes. So with a naked eye from this hemisphere, you can see Andromeda, not in downtown Houston, but maybe on the top of the Rockies or someplace like that. But it's that big. Now, Andromeda, what we didn't know before telescopes is that it is home to half a trillion stars. 500 billion stars in Andromeda, making it twice as big as our galaxy, the Milky Way. And what we did not know before telescopes, which we know now, is that these two galaxies, the Milky Way and Andromeda, are only two of 100 billion galaxies, all filled with this kind of stars. And as our mind is reeling, whoa, our God is so great. He's so vast that with his mere breath, he creates this. And to think that this great God became human in Jesus Christ and walked around on this planet as one of us and was rejected and mocked and ridiculed and ultimately crucified, and he did it for love for you. It is the most stunning thing ever, the most stunning thing in all of fiction, and yet it's true, the gospel, that God, the creator, has become our redeemer in Jesus Christ. And no wonder at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 4 and 5, two majestic passages of praise, Revelation 4, God is worshiped as creator, and in Revelation 5, God is worshiped as redeemer. The greatness of our life. The creator who breathes light out of the darkness is the redeemer who breathes light into the darkness of our souls. And the fact that God is so big, so great, so vast, means in our everyday lives, when we have overwhelming problems and we're not sure we're going to make it, God is bigger than your problems. Whatever happens, he's bigger. That problem is not bigger than God. And he can take care of it in his wisdom and his grace. And we trust him. We trust him. It's like last week in Psalm 131, where David humbles himself before God and says, my mind is not occupied with things that are too great for me, 
too marvelous for me. In other words, I can't understand all that God does and all that God allows. The greatness of our God. The greatness. I think about, in light of Genesis 1, I think about Psalm 46.10, which simply says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Revelation 4.11, passage I mentioned a little bit earlier. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For, because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to receive all glory, honor, and The only proper response to the greatness of God in creation is worship. Not just with our lips on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, but with all of our lives. Genesis 1 is a God-centered passage. The whole Bible is a God-centered book. The whole universe is a God-centered universe. And you were made to live God-centered lives. No other life is going to work for you. It just, they, they just don't work. Put Jesus Christ at the center of your life if you want life to work. Stand with me, please. Lord God, we worship you because you are the vast holy, sovereign, infinite God, and you have come to us to save us from our sin in Jesus. We worship you deeply. Lord, if there's anybody here who has is, who is stiff-armed you out of their life, have not bowed the knees in their heart to you, may right now, Lord God, they bow the knee. May they breathe a prayer, Lord God. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If that's you, if you've never admitted your sin before God, humbled yourself, oh God, I need a Savior, just breathe a prayer, and He will save you. He will save you. Lord, we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.